Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer, editor and fiancé, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So, Mitch, how are you? How is it going? It's been a couple months yeah, since we were on the podcast. It's fine. Same old. Nothing much has really happened. Is that true? No, that's not true at all. But that's just <laughs> my kind of reflexive response. You know, people will ask me and say, how do you do? And I'm like, oh, yeah, same old. Not too bad. And I'm like, wait a sec. No, I like I got engaged. <laughs> like, all this stuff's happening. Like, I, you know, I, I don't actually think about the question. But yeah, things are going great. Things are going fantastic. How are you? Good. And you also forgot to say that you started Geronis. Yes. Well, yes. By the time this is out, I'm, I'll be properly, properly started. Well, you've already, accepted it. You're yeah, doing your honours And I'm already year. doing work and research and that. So I think it's going to be a big year. I think you can say that you are doing your honours now. There you go. Okay. I'm doing that. And you're graduating this year as well. Things are happening. From, yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. That's why I need you because you put things into Yeah. Into you're like, I'm good. I'm like, excuse I'm me. Where is the debris? <laughs> Well, how are you? How are you going? I am good. Also engaged. What a coincidence. Wow. Currently booked and busy. I am obviously working and back at PTV after our lovely break where I went to Adelaide, which was really nice. Loved Adelaide. Also, I've picked up doing the book club for pedestrian, which is really nice. So Mm. I am now doing Liddy Committee. So... If anyone wants to send me books, I'm collating and I do reviews and stuff and interviews now. It's so fun. I actually really love doing Liddy Committee. I've only done one like book recommendation thing so far because I'm new to the role, but it's fun and exciting. I love books. I'm in my reading era. I've already mm. read two books this year, which for me is crazy. I'm on to my third book. That's pretty good. And normally it takes me like months and months and months to finish a book because as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I read like six or seven books at once I'm not I like literally like I'm not kidding like six or seven books at once mm-hmm. and then I'll read 10 pages of one here 20 pages of the one there and because I flip between them like it takes me a really long time to finish a book mm. but I have read two books in a row kind of from start to finish which is very unlike me but I'm in my reading era also still accepting freelance pitches for pedestrian which has been really nice like doing some features editing which is my passion my career goal so it's nice to do that on this side and obviously, I am wedding planning, which like is currently the bane of my existence. If one more person tells me to just enjoy it, just like like you know, appreciate the time you have right now, being engaged, just enjoy the wedding. I will actually fight someone. Like it's actually going to piss me off now. <laughs> wedding planning is very stressful. As much as I would love to enjoy it, when people don't reply to me and my wedding is edging closer by the dates in like four months, I want to throw hands. So I feel like when I'm not doing all these other lovely fun things. I want to cry, <laughs> but it's fun. I'm en- I'm enjoying being engaged, but I swear to God, every time I like try and talk to somebody about the difficulties of wedding planning, they're always like, just enjoy it. In a I'm year's like, time, you're going to look back on this and realize it was I, the best time of your life. I'm like, I highly fucking doubt that. Like, I, I'm going to be so relieved when I no longer have to do this. <laughs> mm. And it's like telling me to enjoy it is not going to make me enjoy it. Now I'm just stressed about the fact that I'm wasting time being stressed. You know, it's just like... 
yeah, the engagement becomes kind of like a burden. It's yeah. like, here's this ring plus months worth of, of admin. <laughs> and all your savings gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I can't complain. I'm excited to have a wedding, but it is a lot of work. Mm. Oh, another thing I did, I, I went to my friend's farm for like a week. Is, is another thing, you know, like, again, I'm always just like, nothing's really happened. No, like things are going on. Saw some, saw some kangaroos and some frogs, which was... The frogs are pretty cute. I wasn't there, but I enjoyed the pictures. Yes, I was. I was trying to call you while I was up there, and then I was like, "Oh fuck!" Because I saw a a frog. I I didn't know it was a frog. A creature leaping from across the room onto my books because I just wanted to read. I'm so jealous. Learned frog. I love frogs, and I feel like I've never had a real frog experience. I think this was my first. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's kind of a blessing. Like I, I, I mean, to be fair, I feel like some people probably live in areas where they see lots of frogs, but I don't really see frogs. So to me, that's really exciting. And yes, we're finally back to doing podcasts, which was ended up being a kind of a, an unannounced, unintended hiatus. Like it just kept getting kind of pushed around. It was like, well, first you're COVID. That's true. I that did was get true. COVID. Which that feels like a lifetime ago, but you got COVID. So then we're like, okay, we're gonna do it this week, and then engagement and I was like okay well we're kind of busy and enjoying that so push it back and then it just kept being like schedules wouldn't align you're, you're, you're going to Adelaide, Adelaide you're going, going to, farm. to the farm there's admin to do oh we haven't seen each other for a week so we're, like the one time that we're gonna meet up we don't want to like do kind of work here so like I've, I, we've missed it but also it's been so long yeah it feels like it's been forever it's actually only been two months which I feel like it's kind of a standard summer hiatus but I feel like yeah. like Six months feels, it like, feels ages. like a long time, and I also like we're back, but also I say that apprehensively because <laughs> tentatively, yeah, yeah, because I feel like we're gonna get busy with like wedding planning and stuff. So ideally, we like stick to this fortnightly thing, but I feel like there may be a few weeks where we miss an episode in the foreseeable future. Really, like savor the treat. Yeah, that is an episode. <laughs> Listen to it over. You'll the course see. Of a it'll month. be a surprise. It'll be a surprise every fortnight whether or not you get an episode. Who knows? <laughs> no, I plan to be doing it mostly, but I think closer to the wedding there'll probably be. We'll definitely take some off when we actually get married. Yes. So, uh, who knows? But let's move on to recommendations. I have two. The first one is one of the books I read. And it's called Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, which I remember because I got that book um, from work, like through, it was like a PR thing. And I remember showing it to Mitch and he was like, that looks like the most unappealing book I've ever seen in my life. Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, you were like, that's like the dumbest fucking title. Like you just hated it. Oh, no. And I was like, it looks really interesting. Like I was defending it. And then I read it like from beginning to end when I was in Adelaide. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. It is also set in like New South Wales, Australia. And that's part of the reason I recommended it because I don't really read a lot of Australian fiction. Like at all. And I want to read more. So, yeah, it's just to give a very quick synopsis. It's like a locked room whodunit murder mystery, but it's like kind of self-aware and breaks the fourth wall. Like it's being told from the perspective of somebody retelling it because they're writing a book about it happening to them. And the main character who is telling it in first person is also like into true crime and teaches people how to write true crime and mystery and all that kind of stuff. So it's like him doing his job and writing this book and then purposefully change details and then brackets be like, by the way, I changed this to make it more mysterious. It was actually this. Like, it's kind of, it's fun. Like, I really enjoyed the style, very sardonic, very funny. Did I guess the ending? Only a little bit, which for me is higher praise. I'm a serial ending guesser. Mm. So... That is a good review from me. I really liked it. I forgot the author's name, but I will put it in the little bio for our episode. And then I had one other quick recommendation, and that was Marcel Shell 
<clears throat> with shoes on, which yes. is like something we were quite late to watch, I think. Like by the time I'd watched it, everybody at work had also already watched it. But I loved it. It was really good. It felt like a warm hug in movie form. Just so many like lovely, quite profound bits of dialogue. Very mm. cute movie. It's very beautiful. Yeah. That would also be one of my recommendations for this week. Oh, I, I can't remember a film that would just uh, made me kind of tear up so much because it is like very cute, but it's, it's almost uh, unassuming with how, uh, and it really sneaks up on you insofar as it kind of tears you apart in unexpected ways. I thought I would have personally more recommendations because um, I have been watching stuff, but nothing really comes to mind. So I'll give kind of two half recommendations. Uh, Why aren't they full recommendations? <laughs> they, okay, well, I'll get to that. The first one is I rewatched Porsche Relating on Fire in the past couple of weeks, and we've already talked about that at length as an episode. We did an episode on the female gaze and whether or not it could exist. And I rewatched it, and it's just like, man, what an ex- astoundingly beautiful film. It's uh, It's... I think recently there was the top 100 films by the Sight and Sound, like top 100 critics list. Uh, and I think that was added to the list. And yeah, like it is just one of the best movies ever made. So every it time I, But it, I would agree. It, it was just, really good. Yeah, it, and it's just so unique and it forces you to watch it differently. And the film trains you to watch it in a certain way. Like it, it, it's just so unique. And the other one is a book I've been reading. And I think it's good to recommend books, which I've half read on the show. I do this all the time. it forces me to finish it. Yes. It forces me to, like, it's in the world now that I've started reading this, especially if it's kind of holds harder you accountable. book, that, like a longer <laughs> book, which I have to work through. So exactly, it holds me accountable. So I'm reading Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. I won't say too much more, but you can hold me accountable. Ask me in like a couple months, have you finished Anti-Oedipus? And hopefully I'll say yes. But yeah, that's it for now. (laughs) One final thing I wanted to mention before we get to our topic today. Like, I want to call it follow-up, but there isn't really follow-up because we've been gone for so long that I could literally pick any news article in the cycle and it would be follow-up. But just one thing I wanted to mention was something that happened in Victoria on January 26th. It's only kind of just come out in the news now, but basically CCTV footage obtained by the Herald Sun and I think 3WA Radio or 3AW Radio. I'll put a link for it in the sources. Um, but basically footage captured a police officer slapping an 11-year-old child across the face during an arrest, which immediately you hear that and you're like, what the fuck? And I normally wouldn't even bother talking about it because like, what's another police brutality story in Australia? But the reason I'm talking about it is because there's been some discourse about this because the child in question, so, okay, so just to like create an image in your mind's eye, there are two police officers holding an 11 year old boy, one on each arm, like holding his arms behind his back while he's like screaming and struggling. The kid is white. One of the police officers holding him is a woman who is not white. I don't know what her ethnic background is, but she's not white. And this boy is hurling racial slurs at her and at everybody else and like swearing and clearly being a nuisance in a lot of ways and then while he is being restrained by these two officers he spits at the female officer and then she slaps him hard across the face it's oh my god like watching it's fucked like the the slap there is it feels like there is force behind it this context the racial context of this I think has contributed, though not as much as you would expect, to the fact that a lot of people are defending this police officer's actions. Even like, because I covered that for Pedestrian, and our audience, at least on Instagram, 
is usually pretty progressive when it comes to cops. Most of them are like relatively ACAB or at least critical of police brutality at the very least. And even in our Insta comments, people were like, nah, she was right for that. Like if some kid spat at me, I'd slap them, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that little shit deserved it. Other comments like that. And I was quite astounded because I hate that I have to say this, but like ACAB is like all cops, even like ethnic cops, even woman cops, even cops who come from marginalized backgrounds. We're not pro any cops. No cops. And it doesn't matter what an 11-year-old child is saying. There is no, like, okay, myself, woman of color, you know, like I have worked in retail, for example, where I have been abused pretty relentlessly. There is nothing in the world that an 11-year-old child could say to me that would make me feel like I should slap them across the face. Like Mm. literally nothing because I'm an adult with impulse control. And like, it's my job in a situation, any situation in which I am with a child to be the composed one, the one with self-control, the one who like is able to make rash decisions in this scenario. I just think it's wild that people will justify police brutality against a child because that child was saying slurs. If an 11 year old called me slurs, I would not slap them across the face. Like what the fuck is wrong with y'all? Like, like we're not supportive of that in any context, especially when it's a police officer and there are two adults already holding this child down. That kid is already facing the consequences of whatever actions he has done. He is already being arrested. He's already being punished. And like people to justify a police officer slapping a child across the face while they are already being restrained is like wild to me. And another reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think there has been a lot of weird discourse in the last couple of months around ethnic police officers because of the murder of Tyree Nichols in the US. So if you want to cross that, Tyree Nichols is a black man in the US who was beat to death by black police officers. And there's like a lot of protests happening right now. Like police brutality is at the forefront of conversation again. It's reminiscent of the George Floyd protests. But another conversation coming out of that is people being like, well, how can this be racism? It was black police officers. Or like, how can you say Black Lives Matter? Because it was black police officers that killed him. People trying to discredit like the Black Lives Matter movement because it was black police officers that murdered Tyree Nichols. And it's just like, again, like ACAB is all cops. And there are plenty of marginalized people who enter the police force Mm -hmm. because it gives them a feeling of control over their environment that they don't experience otherwise and they're fucking sellouts they're fucking race traders like i don't feel sympathy for them we're not on the same side this is where class solidarity becomes a thing not everybody of a marginalized background is immediately left-wing and the person you side with all the time like there are nuances involved the same way that like when kamala harris was like elected in the u.s we weren't celebrating because we were like she's got a fucking awful track record and she's a cop (laughs) like that's not a win for us anyway i just like i wanted to bring it up because i feel like a lot of especially white people in australia who uh, like unsure sometimes of their political stance because they want to side with the marginalized group. So they see a person of color and they immediately think that's the person they should side with. Mm. And it's like, in terms of like police, you and no, just no. And like, take it from me as like a woman of color. Like that is not who we're siding with. And like have like, you know, be a bit more interrogative of like state power. This is about power. Yep. And sometimes in certain circumstances, like with police officers, a person of a marginalized background is going to have power over someone who is like white, for example, like that boy. Yeah. I, it is worth reiterating that we're like, we're not kidding when we say ACAB and that like. Yeah. We're not just saying it because the catchphrase. We fucking yeah, believe the, it. The, the first A, the all like. That's, you know, not conditional. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it is ACAB. And again, when we're talking about policing being racist, we're not talking about individual police officers. We're talking about 
policing as an institution, as a system, as an idea through which the individual police officers are just like a vessel for this larger movement. So it doesn't matter who the actual uh, individual is continuing policing, enforcing or performing policing, like the, the, the performance, the act in and of itself is racist. So it doesn't matter, you know, it literally does not matter who is on the front lines. It's just the, the fucked apparatus as a whole. Yeah, there's an interesting Guardian article, which I can link below. It's called, Yes, Black Officers Killed Tyree Nichols. What is the correct response to that? And I mean, I don't agree with everything in that article because some of it is a little all lives mattery. But bits of it that I do agree with, uh, there's this quote. The hierarchy of racial terror has never been enforced only by white people, nor has it harmed only black people. And in the article, it discusses like the history of like slavery in America. And it talks about the fact that oftentimes like white families who owned like enslaved people, they would have like their favorite slaves, I guess. And mm. then it was that typically black slaves job to hold the other slaves to account. Mm-hmm. And Stockholm syndrome was a thing. And like there was lateral violence. And there still is lateral violence because a lot of people are trying to negotiate the environment around them like black cops. And they're like, well, this environment is hostile to me. Instead of actually like dismantling it, I am going to join the power structure that oppresses my friends so that I can escape that oppression myself. So it's like people can choose to side with the evil and when it benefits them. And everybody does that, not just white people and like, that's why we're all cops are bastard because every cop, everyone that becomes a cop immediately pledges their loyalty to the state and to a racist system and it does not matter what their race is. Shall we get into today's topic? Yes. Okay. This episode contains discussions of sexual violence and image-based abuse, so please consider that when you listen to this episode. Today we are going to talk about AI, artificial intelligence, chat GPT, and deepfake porn. Basically, an array of different ways AI has manifested in recent years and the implications of that. Because like the rise of AI is a huge topic right now, especially in regards to like job replacement, security, data, privacy. Art. Art. Yes, that's actually I have something I want to say about that, which Mm. I just remembered now. Previously, conversations of AI have been, I think, more about data mining and racism specifically, at least from like when I studied it three years ago, my media degree. A lot of the conversations around the ethics of AI were A, about like just the wild amounts of data that AI has access to in order to like do its machine learning. And B, like because AIs are created by human beings, they obviously often have racial biases. The most common example being like and this is not, I think like this one's quoted all the time but it's like those um hand dryers in bathrooms you know when you stick your hand under it and then they dry your hands sure I feel like anyone who studied media knows this but basically like what happened was that was like only tested on white people because a lot of things are only tested on white people and typically white men and then after they were installed a lot of people who are black noticed that when they tried to dry their hands it wouldn't turn on mm-hmm. and it's because it like literally just was not taught to pick up black skin And, you know, we can see that in a lot of, like, AIs, especially in, like, cameras and things like that, where they are, like, really adept at, like, picking up white features or, like, singling out very detailed elements of, like, a white face, but, like, not with black faces because they're not tested. So they often have racial biases. And I feel like that was the main conversation. 
Yeah, exactly. The Like a few years ago and like what I've done research into is like algorithmic biases and the way that like algorithms, despite the way we perceive them as being, you know, mathematical, statistical and objective, actually are nothing like that. They just reproduce the biases of the people that created them. And then the big stories were like, you remember searching unprofessional hairstyles or if you search professional hairstyles on it Google Images, it's all white people. And then when you search unprofessional hairstyles, it comes up with black people. And it's not because an individual was like, I'm going to put all these images here, but it's because racist people, even unconsciously racist people or people within a racist system were creating algorithms which can't help but reproduce that system. And thus the effects are going to be racist in an unconscious way. But the conversation was kind of limited to this kind of algorithmic reproduction of systemic biases. But now the conversation has kind of shifted as in the past few years, AI has gotten increasingly more sophisticated. So it's no longer just what are the invisible biases which shape the way we interact with like online platforms or the way people of color or people of like less intelligible sexes uh, from the perspective of, you know, online platforms uh, are discriminated or sort of excluded from these spaces. But it's almost turned to AI can seemingly replicate human labor or the production done by humans. So what does this do to things like job security or the creation of art or what does writing or what does art even mean in the context where AI can pretty much almost effectively replicate this work to a surprisingly high level of fidelity? Which brings us to things like chat GPT, which Mm. is like all anyone is talking about, I feel like right now is everywhere. So chat GPT is like an AI chat box where you can like ask it to do something or ask it questions and it will answer you. It's kind of like, I feel like chat boxes like that were really big a few years ago, like when I was in high school, where you would like talk to them and like ask them weird questions. And it was like kind of like, especially with like with Siri, when you'd be like, hey, Siri, Google this. It's kind of like that, but way more sophisticated to the mm. point where you can say, hey, like write me an essay on like, what this philosopher believed about this and then it will write you an essay and it'll do it immediately with no yeah, wait time. way faster than a human possibly like, could. literally like it'll just like a second later you have an essay and what's interesting about chat gpt is i feel like people are talking about it even more than they were talking about dali maybe like a year ago or a few months ago or at least the way they're talking about it is different because if you remember like dali uh, that was the same thing, but images, which if anything seems almost like more fascinating. But the thing about Dali was that people were putting in all these kind of insane prompts uh, and just creating kind of fucked imagery, which then circulated as memes. So people would be like minions in the USSR. And then there would be like a series of funny images, which did show how sophisticated AI is becoming. But with ChatGPT, the thing about what this AI is creating is that it seems almost undistinguishable from what humans can create. It's no longer this kind of uh, elevated, absurd element of how fucked can the outputs be? It's, oh, this has the potential for replacing humans. Yes. It seems. So there's like a lot of, I think, panic, especially Mm. in my sector as a journalist, because not only is ChatGPT writing essays, it's writing blog posts, it's writing articles, I know somebody who is using chat GPT to generate blog posts for their company's like website. It's like a stocks website. So like stock related, Mm. I don't know, fucking bore. I don't know. I've never read a stock blog post in my life, but things like that. And also the guy who owns the brag, Luke Gerges, I don't know his name. The point is that the brag and the companies around it are trialing AI written articles using things like chat 
GPT, which has caused a lot of panic among, among people I work with, like colleagues of mine in like the journalism field because they're like, oh my God, like we really thought we would be the last people to be replaced yeah. by AI. And now we're like scared because these companies are already trialing replacing our labor with AI, which I think is like panic that is not due yet. Like I think it's a bit early to panic about things like that personally because with, for example, articles, do you know how much of my time could be spent writing better articles than sometimes I have to write? Like, for example, if you work in media and you're like, okay, this story has broken and it's like just facts and I need to report these facts. And then there's other stories where you spend weeks interviewing somebody and like doing research and then you publish a story. And I don't think AI is going to take over my job anytime soon because I think what I do, part of the reason I was hired to do my job is because of my specific bias, is because of my specific voice and what I think, like my opinion, which is something like a chat box can't really give. But even if you go past that, like if we did actually implement AI, it would just free me up to write the articles I actually want to write. Like if we used an AI to do like the weather article for this week, every week and the EDM and like, please make my graphic images, that would save me like hours of time that I could like put into long investigative interview like pieces that a chat box is not capable of doing because it's not interviewing you, can't talk to you. So like, I'm not afraid of chat GPT for my job, but I understand like where that fear is coming from, because I also don't put it past these fucking corporations to do their very best at cutting out workers in order to get free labor, because that's what chat GPT is. Like it is doing labor by writing things and it's doing it for free and it's not a person. So you don't owe it wages. Yeah, exactly. Like the world appears to be changing fundamentally that's the way it's being perceived. And the reason we wanted to talk about this today is to kind of discuss some of these narratives that are being thrown upon AI. Like, you know, they're coming for your jobs. They're going to make everything, everyone redundant, blah, 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 blah. And kind of reframe it in a way because I feel like it's really difficult to talk about AI with such sweeping claims as people are trying to do when it is in such a nascent form. And it's also hard to kind of want to immediately criticize a new technology, which is kind of having its moment right now. And it seems that it's going to have its moment for a long time because you never want to be like the conservative reactionary where something new comes along, a new form of technology. And you're like, ah, like the kids are fucked. Like everything's going to go downhill. Like when TV came along and it's like, well, you know, kids are going to, you know, become dumber and stop. People said that when books came out, when books came out, people are going to be doing like all these kids, intellectual tasks. Exactly. So, there's always this tension. You're like, you don't want to be that person who something new comes along and you your immediate reaction is to be like, oh, this is bad because things aren't the way they are. But to me, some reactionary fear against AI is perhaps appropriate. Healthy. Healthy or even suitable because I think AI is fundamentally a reactionary technology. And I also think like with a healthy fear about AI, you should have one because we also just like live in a capitalist society Mm -hmm. where like we don't live in like luxury space communism as much as I wished we did. So like, yeah, it makes sense that there is fear of AI because while AI has so much potential, it also like for like, you know, I guess alleviating mundane tasks. You just fucking know our overloads are not going to use it that way. (laughs) Well, exactly. And to kind of simplify how AI even operates it operates through these kind of neural networks, these sophisticated black boxes that are, you know, machine learning algorithms. It's kind of fascinating because people don't exactly know how they work. 
I could not tell you how an but AI even, works. But even not even everyday people or, or laymen, it's like people who create these systems don't know how they work. All they know is that they do work. Like I'm oversimplifying it somewhat, but all they know is that they put in certain inputs and then they train it until it gets the right outputs. But the actual mechanism of how AI works is kind of like a black box, which is kind of fascinating. And the reason I say that I think AI by its nature is somewhat reactionary is that it can only recreate things which have already existed, which is kind of interesting. It can only kind of assemble a collage or synthesize articles or works of art or just any form of information which has at one point been inputted into it. And then it can only output something which is kind of like a mash of that. It can't create something truly new, which is why its relationship to labor or the replacing of jobs, which is the kind of the big fear at the moment where people say, you know, to a journalist, your days are numbered or to someone that does copy for a company or writes these blog posts for these uh, these firms or someone like a screenwriter, like eventually we won't need screenwriters because AI will just write the perfect movie because why would a studio executive pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a screenwriter when it could just go into ChatGPT? God, that's fucking Search bleak. something up. AI written script. <laughs> well, yeah, people have tried that out and I'll get to the results of that in a sec. But- The thing to remember, I think for me, is that people make it seem like AI can create something new out of nothing. You just go into chat GPT and put in a prompt and then it will create something new. But that's not actually true. The only way it can create something is by synthesizing the previous labor of all of the information and articles and all of the writings which had gone into it, which is important because it's not a kind of a solution for the capitalists, but it's a new type of exploitation. But it's such a a clever form of exploitation because it hides the exploitation that underpins it. There is still exploitation. It still takes labor from people before Mm -hmm. and from people who didn't consent even from their labor to be put into these machine learning algorithms. It takes that labor to create the illusion of something new. But that's, that's the thing. It's just an illusion. Yeah, like relevant to that and what I was saying I wanted to come back to actually is a photographer that I follow on Instagram who does like nature photography whom I love. Uh, I say I love, I actually don't know anything about them. I just like the photos they take. But anyway, they won a photography competition with this stunning portrait of a bird's eye view of a beach with like this golden sunset surface and it's stunning. And then after they won that photography competition, they then revealed that an AI had created that image and they gave back the cash prize because they won it to make a point. Like Mm. they won the competition to make a point of AI's potential and they're like pro AI and like want to talk about the future of AI in art and photography. And I found that really fascinating because it didn't make up that picture that you submitted and no AI that creates a photo has made it up. It has matched up other people's photos that they took. And so I found their take on AI like too simplified because it was like, oh, like they were like, you know, see like AI can create beautiful imagery that is virtually indistinguishable from other photos other people have taken and it can win awards. Like this is like the future. Like this is a potential that we need to tap. This is like stunning. And I was like, okay, but someone took those photos. Those pixels in that image are from somewhere. Yeah. And that is like not fair to win a photography competition by making a collage of other people's photos without their consent because that's what this is. It's like 
minuscule collages of pixels to the point where you can't tell that it's made up of other images, but it is. And I find that quite interesting because I think there is an absence of conversation around the labor required before an artificial intelligence can even learn anything. Because in order to learn and create, it has to like consume all this other work, which most people don't even know that their work is being consumed. Yes, precisely. And that's when I kind of come back to the, you know, like the, the Luddites, mm-hmm. the people, the, the people that are anti-technology. And now that's kind of a pejorative against people who, like us, I suppose, who talk negatively about new emerging technology or people that don't like Facebook or people that don't want to use new technology and, and think way back in the golden age, like things were so much better way back in the good old days. You, you call them a Luddite. But the thing about the Luddites is that they weren't these myopic, unsophisticated reactionaries. But what the Luddites saw was the way in which the machinery, you know, in, in the Industrial Revolution, the way machinery was going to displace people's jobs and how it was going to serve the ruling class and further oppression. It wasn't just like, oh, machinery is scary and that's not good. We want to do things like the, the good old days. But they actually saw how these systems would further power. I do want to make a point that I'm not anti-AI. Like no, I sure. use it every day. I use Siri every day. And I use, like, for my job, I use, um, actually, just recently, we've acquired, like, a transcription service, which is an AI that transcribes our interviews. That shit is the best thing ever. Like, it is, like, cracked me. I love it. I want to transcribe everything. I want to, like... <laughs> just to see trans- what happens. I just want to use it for everything. No, but it's great because, like, I spend hours upon hours transcribing interviews when I do them. It is, like, such a time sink. And sometimes you, like, take so long because, like, obviously, I also work full-time doing, like, daily news coverage on top of the features that I write, that sometimes you're like, fuck, like, it took me two weeks to get around to this, and now this is stale. I can't even use this interview anymore. What a waste of my time and that person's time as well. Like, it sucks. Mm. And now I can do, like, real-time transcript. I can literally just have it on while I'm talking to somebody. It'll describe as I go. Stunning. So I'm not against AI, and I think AI, in a lot of ways, can make ease in our lives. But I also, like, am weary of how much of it is still like under a veil and not really talked about and not really considered because like to consider those issues would be a massive inconvenience for some of the people who want to profit off these AIs. Yeah, exactly. I think I want to challenge the narrative, which I feel like has been prominent. Yeah, it's not so much challenging AI, it's challenging the narrative and the use of AI. Exactly. It's not that AI is scary because capitalists have found a way to make new things and of nothing and that's a threat to people's jobs but for me ai is scary because capitalists have found a way to develop a new kind of exploitation to exploit labor it's not that capitalists have found the magic solution to no longer need workers they kind of need the workers but are able to take the labor from the workers without actually yeah and ai is just like a reverse robin hood (laughs) like steals the work of the poor and gives it to the rich sure exactly there was a quote from this theorist i think i've probably mentioned him on the podcast before because i i love him uh called alexander galloway and he had like a blog post about ai it was pretty short but i read it a couple months ago and thought it was very enlightening so i thought i just read a quote which i think kind of sums this up well where he says quote I'm frequently skeptical towards enthusiasts of AI and automation, especially when they claim that robots or algorithms can create meaning out of whole cloth. No one has yet patented a meaning machine. Google can't create meaning, even if it can effectively extract meaning from a network where meaning was previously deposited. It's a fun game to play. Listen for someone saying they found value or meaning, and you will inevitably find an occluded evidence of previous labor. It's an extraction logic, not a production logic. AI doesn't produce anything. It extracts things from that was already mm. there, which is how, and that's what like capitalism does with labor. You know, 
workers are alienated from their labor and now they're being alienated in a kind of new way because everyone it's like ai is stealing taking a little bit from here taking a little bit from here taking a little bit of here so that where it was actually taken from becomes unrecognizable or becomes unlocatable which is why i think it's such a kind of pervasive form of exploitation there's another context where ai has become part of this almost this moral panic this hysteria uh, which i think is quite revealing about the nature of AI, which is within the university context, especially me, I spend a lot of my time at university talking to tutors. And there's a fear about what happens to assessments or marking or essays in a world where there's chat GPT, because there has been evidence that students have been using chat GPT to write essays for them. Yeah, it's happening in high school too. And the thing is, and the scariest thing is that these are actually kind of somewhat proficient essays. Like they get a pass mark. You can get through a degree, it seems, by just having these kind of services write essays for you. Because, I mean, a, a couple of years ago, it was people paying randoms to have their essay written for them. Like, was it contract cheating? But now it's like, you don't even need that element. You, can you don't just, even have to pay someone. You can get an essay written immediately and it's actually a serviceable essay. So that's one of the fears. And as we said, the other fear was with like knowledge workers who are getting displaced or having their jobs made redundant because companies can just get an AI to write copy. And the truth is for these two concerns that, yeah, like AI can write university level essays and AI can write copy for companies. But for me, the reason that AI is so easily able to replicate these kinds of media is because I think in the first place, most of these things weren't really worth writing anyways. You know what I mean? I think that what schooling, for example, demands from students is like very formulaic, regimented essays that follow like a very linear path. And the same with social copy, like people writing blog posts for companies, uh, you know how like every like company- Like SEO stories Yeah, exactly. Every company has like a blog section full of SEO pieces, which no one actually reads. Like they're just, they just exist and to exist. And all the information in there is already on Google. Like it doesn't require- Exactly. Like new learning to write. The reason that AI can seemingly mimic so much of what we do is because- under capitalism, so much of what we do is not necessary. Yes. Or what universities expect from students, especially as like standards have been decreasing as universities become like uh, education to industry pipeline. The standards have decreased. And it is just true that an AI can write an, a university level essay because most of the essays like aren't particularly useful. And the same with so many articles and the same with so many of these blog posts. And I think optimistically, if we were going to use AI as a tool, if we weren't consumed by capitalism, then AI would kind of direct us towards things that are worth doing. Because if an yes. AI can do it, then perhaps it's not worth doing in the first place. Yeah, like perhaps we can save our time, have AI do this stuff that is not worth doing and we can do the other stuff. I, this, I guess it's very similar to what I was saying with journalism because it's also yeah. a similar issue with like who is writing these. And something else I want to mention with like university essays and AI is that an AI can't write like a postgrad research piece because no. it can't interview people it can't collate things that aren't already on the internet so like if i write an article and i interview three academics for it and i like call them and i talk to them and i get their opinion and then like so i have posited a question with this article that i am curious about and then i've asked all these people and then collated it into an article that is not something an ai can do because it can't ask a unique question mm. it can't because it doesn't actually think it just regurgitates mm. so it doesn't have unique thought it can't ask a question and then it can't like call somebody get their like 
unique quotes that don't currently exist on the internet because I haven't uttered sentences in this order before and then create new work. So really for me, like in an ideal world, AI would be really useful because I can go and do what I actually want to do in journalism (laughs) and not waste my time on like journalism, which an AI can do. Yes, I think an AI cannot, as far as we know, and, and maybe it will change in the future, but I don't think an AI can think conceptually but it can write in a way that looks conceptual. It can imitate conceptual I was going to say, it can imitate it. But can, thinking conceptually to me isn't just like being able to put a certain number of words in the right order, but it's like an actual process. You're doing something. It's like a performance of some kind. AI can do research. It can't think. And that's important. I yes. Think. And like, to make. Yes. And I think it's important that we uh, reconsider what it means to think. I think AI is like actually really posing these questions, which I think is quite interesting. I just think it's important to remember that an AI can't write anything that hasn't already been written, which you can. And I was experimenting with chat GPT earlier this morning and it's very fun to play with. I asked it to list me a bunch of reasons why AI is problematic. And I was, and then it would give me those reasons saying, oh yeah, like there is the possibility for algorithmic bias. You know, it will replicate the systemic biases uh, of the system is created in. It can result in privacy invasion. It can result in job displacement. So the AI kind of knows why the AI is bad. Because it can it can Google yeah. why it's bad. And then I can be like, rewrite that, but from a Marxist perspective. And it will do that. And then like, oh, rewrite that, but add some Deleuze in there. And it will do that. But when you actually look at the structure of it, even when you ask it to write more academically or more poetically or more figuratively, is that you can still see the seams of its writing. You can see how formulaic its writing is the same way high school teaches students to write their essays in a very formulaic way. I think the issue isn't that robots, you know, AI can write like humans, but the issue is, is that too often humans write like robots. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Let's talk about the flip side of this conversation. And it's, I guess, AI being used to create things, but like the dark side. And specifically, I actually really want to talk about deep fake porn which has been something that I've been very interested in in terms of AI because of something that happened in January. So little story time. On January 31, Twitch streamer Atrioc, I want to say the pronunciation. We're not gamers. I'm not a gamer and I'm not on Twitch, so I don't care. <laughs> a man on Twitch, well-known man on Twitch who plays games and streams them, uploaded a teary apology because... His fans, people who watch his stream, had caught him consuming deep fake porn made of fellow streamers, women streamers, who had not consented to that porn being made and did not know that it was existing, essentially. So he was like playing the game. He accidentally tabbed out or his other windows popped up and there in front of everybody was sexually explicit content of these creators who had never been okay with this happening. Obviously, like he experienced backlash from fans of those creators who were like, what the fuck? Like you are being a creep. There were also obviously many trolls, misogynists, not like majority men, but not just men, a lot of people, like criticizing those creators and like defending him being like, well, it's not real. Like it's not real porn. It's just like made up. Like what's the difference between watching that and like imagining it in your head? But there's been all of this discourse since that happened that has really interested me 
in terms of like the weaponization of AI, specifically in like gender-based violence. So after Atrioc put up his apology, the women that he had sexually exploited via consuming that deepfake font, which by the way, I feel like it's worth noting he paid for it. He it's, didn't stumble upon it. He did not. He said like, okay, so in his apology, he was like, you know, it was like an accident. It was a one-time occurrence. I was surfing the web on, like I was on a porn website. I saw an ad pop up. I clicked on it. And then I like a rabbit hole out of like morbid curiosity. But that shit that he was accessing is behind a paywall. You have to like subscribe. It's not something you can just come across. So he's full of shit, essentially. The women at the center of this deep fake porn issue spoke out afterwards and were obviously greatly distressed by it. One of them, whose name is Maya, put out a statement on Instagram where she recalled being sexually assaulted in 2018 and said that this felt the same. I'll read out her quote, actually. Quote, In 2018, I was inebriated at a party and I was used for a man's sexual gratification without my consent. Today, I have been used by hundreds of men for sexual gratification without my consent. The world calls my 2018 experience rape. The world is debating over the validity of my experience today. End quote. And I found her statement really powerful and really moving and also really thought-provoking because it then asked the question, do we consider deep fake porn sexual assault? And if we don't, why not? Because, yeah, like if she feels the same way and she's somebody who like has lived experience as like she survived a sexual assault and if she herself is saying, yeah, this feels just as traumatic and distressing, then like that is worth listening to. And a lot of people online were obviously dismissive of her, gaslighting her, you know, saying, well, no one actually touched you. You didn't even know about it until now. Like you didn't even know that you were on that website until now. You're clearly unharmed, like blah, blah, blah. You know, just like every kind of deflective thing in the book, which, yeah, I think is bullshit. And I also think this opens up a conversation about AI specifically, Mm -hmm. because what these people themselves are arguing is like, well, that was AI, wasn't you. And I find that distinction very interesting. The online, offline, real or not real, the real or not real, I find very, very interesting. Before I just get into like that part and leave the story behind, I do want to note one thing. So the creator of that deep fake porn website has actually since taking the website down. I don't think it's a coincidence that they took it down after one of the other streamers who there was also deep fake porn of her on that website said she would sue. She was like, the creator of this website, no, from like the bottom of my fucking heart, I'm going to sue you. Like she was like, I'm coming for you, which power to her, like get him queen, love that. But the creator took it down and on the website now is an apology. And it's such an eye roll to me because it's like, you know, I'm a terrible person. I'm scummy. I'm going to leave because I was so bad. And it like completely (laughs) centering their own distress at being a bad person. I'm worthless. <laughs> it's like very pick me sad boy energy. Like yes, stop. Yes. Just stop. Uh, but I just thought that was, I'm only telling that because it's funny. It's not relevant to the story. I guess it's relevant in the sense that that website no longer exists, but who knows? Maybe they're functioning from a different alien. Like who, nobody would know. How the fuck do you regulate that? If the only time you're going to apologize for creating porn of women without the consent is when you're caught, then I don't really feel inclined to believe that that's going to stop. But anyway, I digress. So let's come back to online, offline, virtual, real world, whatever you want to call it. So I actually wrote an article for this, which I spent like a couple of weeks working on (laughs) and AI could never. Uh, I'll put it in the sources below. Uh, What do you mean? I I could have done it in like half a second. Nah, no, I refuse to believe it. Anyway, so I spoke to Dr. Emma Jane for this 
article, she is like one of the world's leading academics actually on like gender-based violence online. Uh, She calls it technology facilitated gender-based violence is what she would refer to it. But that is inclusive, not just of deep fake porn. That's what I asked her about, but she's written a lot about like trolling, like sexual abuse online, rape threats, like all threats, just like this typical fucked vile vitriol women get online and people who aren't men. But anyways, I talked to her about it and she raised some interesting points, which I like agree with and thought anyway, but it's nice to be backed up by someone who's like their authority on this. And she essentially was like saying that she doesn't really believe in this. She called it a stark dichotomy mm. between online and offline anymore. And I really agree. I think we've said things like that actually before 100%. on the podcast. Yep. Is that like we live in a world now where like our online experiences, quote unquote, like filter and bleed into our offline, quote unquote, experiences because they're like they're they're so enmeshed. They're so much the same thing these days. Like and the way that we respond to like online stimuli is the same way that we respond to offline. So if somebody calls me a fucking bitch and threatens to rape me on the Internet, which has happened in the past, like that is distressing for me. And that is scary for me, no matter in what context it has been said to me, because like it's a fucking threat and my safety feels compromised, especially because these days it's so easy to dock someone. So like it's scary in person when someone says that to you because there's like an immediate threat. But now it's scary online, too, because like it's still an immediate threat because somebody can still fucking find you. But let's take that one step further with like virtual assault. The women who have experienced virtual forms of assault since the dawn of it existing have spoken about it feeling just as traumatic as, like, in real life events. Mm -hmm. Another little story time. The first ever, like, reported, I think they called it a cyber rape at the time, was in 1993. This is 30 years ago. So this issue has been an issue for 30 years, which I think is worth noting, which is why we're talking about it now, because AI is so fucking massive and we're still only, like, not really talking about AI and, like, cyberspace and sexual assault. But Mm. anyway... 30 years ago, there was a, like, I want to say platform called Lambda Moo. And it was essentially, how would I describe it? It's like a multiplayer game. But this is like when the internet was in its infancy. So what it looks like visually is you are staring at a screen of text. And it's like, it's like writing role play. It's like, you know when you get those text messages and it's like, tips Fedora, hello. It's like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, I am like speaking my role play via like text yes and then you have like a character and lambda it's like it's like a mansion and there are like rooms and people like walk around the rooms and it has like rules like you can only walk in and out through doors and stuff there are like parameters kind of like a virtual dungeons and dragons where you're like you talk about what happens and there's like a lot of creative freedom on what your character looks like i feel like yeah kind of like a digital dungeons and dragons anyway so this was very popular at the time and then there was a person who on that platform used it's referred to as a voodoo doll. I was not born when this happened. I don't know what internet slang that means, but I, my assumption is like they were able to hijack the code in order to have control over other people's like avatars. And my, this is all text, which I think is important. So when this was happening, it was happening via people reading it. But that person like brutally sexually assaulted other characters in the game via text. So it would be like, so-and-so takes off your pants. Like it, it's written. Yeah. Through the language of the game and the kind yes. of the way you interact with the game and the way the game tells a story, it told yeah. this story. It told this story of like quite brutal sexual assault first, that character doing it to other characters, and then they were able to like hijack those characters. Mm. So then those characters were doing things in the sense of like their characters were writing that they were doing things when the person behind those characters wasn't. 
So it's like hijacked. And this was like a really big deal in like this like online community. It was like a very obviously like distressing incident, but also at a time where like this kind of stuff doesn't exist. Like now we have, I think, a really good understanding of like how online experiences are just as traumatic as offline experiences. But that wasn't a conversation back then because the internet was very new. And so there was like, you know, discussions on the community boards of this thing and the threads where everybody was like, that was kind of fucked. How do we mediate this? And the people who had it happen to them were like, yeah, I actually cried. Like I actually cried in real life while it was happening because it was like really distressing to me. And at that time, there were people like devaluing what had happened and being like, it's not even real. You were just reading words on a screen, like relax. Like no one touched you. Like how can you call that rape or sexual assault? Like you are demeaning rape and sexual assault by applying those words to this instance that you experienced. And as Dr. Emma J noticed, it's kind of very telling that 30 years from now we have made no progress despite how much progress the internet has made. Despite how much the internet is now everywhere and we live in the internet, we still have the same language And now it's like the way that sexual assault is happening online. She calls it sexual violence. She said that there's no distinction between like in real sexual assault. Like this is still sexual violence. It's all sexual violence. It doesn't really matter whether it's offline or online. It has the same traumatic impacts on people. So there's no reason to differentiate the two. But our conversation was interesting because then we were talking about like, what do we do about this kind of AI? Like, how is this even regulated? Like, do we even talk about it like it's just AI? Because like, is it AI's fault? Like people are making this with AI. So like, who do we even blame for this? It's a really complicated discussion. It is complicated. Because who do you hold accountable for deep fake porn? Exactly, because there's almost these two levels of like oppression in a way, like what we were talking about before with chat. GBT was how AI at like the structural level, the infrastructure of AI replicates, you know, given biases or different inequities in a given, you know, society or system. But then also there's this more kind of practical or pragmatic violence, which is just how these tools are used. There are people who are going to use these tools to enact certain kinds of violence. Like yes. even if these tools were neutral, which as we demonstrated, they're not neutral, but even if they were neutral, they would still be used for violence, for sexual assault, to serve patriarchy or racism or what have you. Yeah, and they have been for a long time. And with like AI and virtual reality and like immersion into the online world, as Dr. Emma Jane pointed out, the moment Horizon Worlds, like Facebook's metaverse platform, became a thing, immediately the first gang rape was reported. This stuff is being used for sexual abuse and exploitation and will continue to be forever because there will always be people who want to sexually abuse and exploit other people so it's like a hard one because in this way you could argue that ai has the potential to make it a lot easier to sexually exploit people because now you don't even have to like be in the same room as them and i think with like deep fake porn quite specifically because i think they're a bit different to like the lambda moo situation or the horizon world situation because there are people there watching themselves being violated in some way whereas with the deep fake porn other people don't know about it they don't even like know that they're the subject none of us would really know if we are like if you're not in that corner of the internet how would you fucking know which also creates like an interesting conversation because it's like if you don't know about it then like can we class it as like Mm. sexual assault because it's like not even hurting you because you don't even know about it which i obviously disagree like i obviously don't think that is the case but people are saying that when i was reading your story i kind of made this connection uh and the politics are different and maybe it's you know a bit simpler what i'm going to bring up than this which is you know Somewhat more complicated, maybe not as complicated as people want to make it out to be because it seems kind of obvious to me, but more complicated. But I was thinking about when I was like 13 or 14, there were the big uh, iCloud leaks of a bunch of famous celebrity women, mostly women, you know, nude photos that were being circulated. 
And I felt like the way I saw people discussing it online, you know, when I was like scrolling through Reddit, probably not good for a 13 year old's brain. Um, but when I was going through there, there was almost a sense that, you know, people were very excited about these photos, mm, which exactly is problematic. But even the people who, you know, weren't like this wasn't the best day of their life, which is, you know, it, it's disgusting. But that's just the way people uh, treated it. But people were like, oh, yeah, like sucks to be them. That sucks. But essentially, if the photos are there, then it's free game. Yes, exactly. That is just OK. So like with yeah. the deep fake porn stuff of those streamers, a lot of people were like, well, you post sexy photos on your Instagram. Mm. How is it any different? Like, why is it different for a guy to jerk off to your Instagram versus to jerk off to a deep fake porn of you? Mm. Which is like, I hate that that's even being asked because it well, seems obvious. I think when I was younger, that moment uh, was important to me because it made me realize and I think it was maybe uh, Jennifer Lawrence was one of the the celebrities mm. where her photos were leaked and, and she was I think talking on the Ellen show or whatever and she was calling out people that looked at her photos because I think I was kind of caught up with the oh that sucks but it's out there but then it, it was like no if you actually pursue those photos despite the fact that they're accessible that is actually a kind of violence you yes. actually that is sexual assault it's not just the person who leaked those photos performed a kind of sexual assault and then now they're out there and anyone can look at them. But if you actually pursue that information, yes. I think, and the way these women talk about these experiences, it's it's not even akin to sexual assault. I think it just is, is sexual assault, yes. which is kind of an important way to look at it. Yeah. QT Cinderella, who is a Twitch streamer who was also kind of involved in this atrioc issue, she like was talking, she put up a very emotional live stream discussing it and where she was like, Fuck Atrioc, obviously, for buying this deep fake porn of me, but also fuck every single person that looked it up afterwards. And yes, it was like, yes. yes, because you are going out of your way to humiliate and exploit that person. And it is sexual assault because you have actively not been given consent and you have gone and sexualized that. Just don't sexualize people without their consent. Like, no matter the medium, like, come on, guys. It seems like we shouldn't have to spell that, but we do because people see AI as a crutch. It's like a barrier between them and actually committing a rape. It's like, I didn't rape her. I just watched this deep fake stuff of her being fucked by someone else. And it's like the AI acts as like the rapist in a way. But like, that's just not the case because you're still consuming it, paying for it, creating a fucking market for it yes. as well. Like, which, you know, a whole other conversation we could be having right now. You can read my article for like a bit of an in-depth investigation, but I really think we need to have a conversation about the evolving nature of what sexual assault is because of AI and even like how we view it. Like just quickly, because I feel like we're kind of coming to the end of our episode, but mm -hmm. like a, a couple of other points that I spoke to Dr. Kath Albury about, she was, oh my God, like my conversation with her was so eye-opening and so interesting. I was like, I want to talk to you forever. So cool. But she made a few good points about like laws around AI. Cause she was just like, okay, first of all, the law is like never going to fucking catch up. We all know this. The difference between the law and AI is that AI keeps evolving <laughs> and the law evolves once every 10 years. Yeah. Like it's just impossible for it to keep up. There's no like pretense that it will. But she also like, obviously talked about the fact that we should regulate this through like image-based abuse laws and blah, blah, blah. But she also started to talk about like copyright and porn performers. And I was like, oh my God, I've never even thought about it that way. But that is so true. Like another avenue that this is problematic is like the porn performers who create porn, it's their work, it's their copyrighted material. And then a deep fake creator or AI or whatever, like paste a celebrity's photo or a woman's photo over their face. And now it's like a different video about somebody else. And it's like these people who have created that content did not consent to A, their content being repurposed, certainly not repurposed to humiliate and exploit another woman who has nothing to do with the sex work industry and does not want to be sexualized, has not consented to being sexualized. And so there's this really interesting 
kind of other angle of conversation around AI where like, yeah, there's all these like really optimistic ways it can be used that I am also somewhat optimistic about, but also like there are so many elements of it we're not discussing because if it makes it easier to do some positive tasks, it is also making it easier to do bad things like deep fake, like sexually exploiting women, like, you know, pseudo rape where you can feel like you're sexually assaulting somebody, but you haven't actually touched them. And that's fun for you. Like, it's fucked. So I feel like, yeah, there's just so many conversations we need to have about the potential of AI that are, like, not just about fucking jobs. Like, yes, yes. there are deeper implications here. And this is just the beginning. I feel like here we're just trying to map out the terrain of the new digital world, which is going to be constantly evolving and shifting because of AI. I think it's going to be a new player in digital spaces. And, and as we discussed there is no, I think there never was, but especially now there is no dichotomy between what we may refer to as like cyberspace or the online and the material world. They are They're all the one same in the thing. same. And it actually, you know, what I'm doing research on this year for my honors project is perhaps arguing that cyberspace in some way has become more prominent. It's almost like the material world is becoming subordinate to that. People, but that's for a future. I feel like in old movies, it would be like, oh, you like go off the internet and then you log off into real life. But I think it's like you deal with your daily life and then you log on to your real life, which is the internet. It's mm. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But we could do a whole other episode. Yeah, that. That, there we go. But AI, I think you're maybe slightly more optimistic than you than are. I. I'm well, I just, a bit more look, of a Luddite. I just recognize that if we lived in an ideal world, AI could be revolutionary. I'm thinking luxury space communism. I'm thinking automating all the shit jobs and like everybody just not having to work. <laughs> like sure, I yeah. recognize that there is like a world where that could exist. I don't think it's our world, but I'm also like, I just don't want to say, oh, AI is bad because I don't, no. it's a tool. Yeah. It's a tool and like how we use it is dependent on what our society values, but like it could be good. <laughs> I, it won't be, overwhelmingly probably won't be, but I feel like it's important to like make a note that it could be, that it's not AI specifically that's bad, it's the way it's being used because it's a tool just like everything else. Cool. Well, thank you for listening to this episode post-unintentional hiatus. Uh, I think now is a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Pia. Thank you so much for your continued support of the podcast. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link as a one-off donation at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at Miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at here's the thing podcast at gmail.com. And please include your name, pronouns, and any other important info if you do. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.